0: Let's play Moon Rock Spiders to decide who's right. <laughs> I like that you're
1: doing the moon. Wa- the moon I was, rock. <laughs> the moonwalk. The, walk, the yeah. moonwalk. The That's moonwalk, the killer walking, the walking up to you in yeah.
0: everyone's dream version of Apollo 18. Knocks on the Just lunar sundering. capsule. Here to kill you.
1: morning, class. Hi. (laughs) Uh, So here we are, Season 1, Episode 5 of Ghoul School, A Horror History Podcast. And we are sort of rounding the bend on the evolution of found footage horror. So one of the issues with choosing a subject that is relatively recent in the grand scheme of the genre is that sometimes while researching we come across a lot of things that are relevant to subjects that might come up later in the podcast and that is definitely the case today because in order to talk about today's films we are mostly exploring notions of the paranormal and families and while i'm going to need to talk Touch on a lot of things going pretty far back. I'm going to avoid diving too deep into them and I'm going to save a lot of that material for future seasons because it will definitely come up again. On a similar note, yes, we've been doing a lot of jumping around in this podcast time-wise and depending on where you think the central timeline for this season's topic exists in the canon of the episodes, there are a number of possible places for this episode to pick up. One of those places is in 1999 with the release of Blair Witch Project. Another one of those places is in 2007, where we left off last episode ahead of the release of Paranormal Activity and the ensuing found footage boom. We will hit both of those points. But, as is my won't. Did I say that right? I'm never sure if I say that word right. Won't? Want? Want. It's not want. I know that much. It's like want, right? There's an. Uh, it's a W-O-N-T. Anyway, As I'm prone to do, we are going to begin this episode pretty far back in the past. So come along with me, if you will, class, friends, to the year 1931. Fellow Iowan Herbert Hoover is president. Our elephant-murdering friend Thomas Edison has just submitted his final patent. Construction on the Empire State Building has just been completed, while construction on Northern California's Bay Bridge has just entered the planning phases. Steps are being taken to repeal prohibition, Nevada has only recently legalized gambling, and the United States has just made the Star-Spangled Banner its national anthem. But let's talk about television. In 1931, the term television had already been around for three decades, and the medium itself for what it was in that era was old enough to vote. But programming and broadcasting were still in their infancies, and in July of 1931, a show called The Television Ghost premiered making it one of the first television shows it ran from july of 31 to february of 1933 it aired on the columbia broadcasting systems w2xab nyc which is now wcbs tv interesting note that same year that the television ghost premiered nbc put a transmitting antenna on top of the recently completed empire state building and began broadcasting from it Now, W2XABNYC was an experimental station for CBS, meaning that CBS was using the station to try out and experiment with different programming options as the technology developed. At this point in the medium's technology, they were using what was called mechanical television that employed the use of rotating discs with holes in them to generate the video signal. W2XAB's transmission only reached a handful of cities outside of New York, including Camden, Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Hartford, and Schenectady. But a lot of their programs were also broadcast through their radio station at WABC, which was connected to more than 80 stations so it carried these audio versions of the programs much further out The television ghost itself is an interesting experiment. It was essentially a storytelling show, where the idea was that the ghosts of murdered people would tell the story of their murders. But it was the same actor playing this phantom storyteller in every episode. And aside from him and his ghost costume, which was a sheet draped over his head and shoulders and wrapped up in his arms, there were no other actors or wardrobe to speak of. were no sets or props, it is considered by many to be the first anthology dramatic television program. And by very strict definitions of what constitutes drama, that's true. It was narrative. It did have stories. But these stories were not dramatized. It was literally a ghost telling us a story, and it was the same ghost, taking on the roles of different people. I guess an analog for this today would be something like creepypasta or horror fiction podcasts, where the same voice actors take on the roles of different characters in every episode. But this was even more rudimentary than that, because it was just the one ghost, which actually creates a very interesting conceit in the idea of one spirit serving as a vessel or mouthpiece for a multitude of of spirits and I'm tempted to stop now before I get too much into what the television ghost was because I do feel like at some point I'm going to do a season on TV horror and maybe specifically anthology TV horror but I'm already omitting a of detail in this episode about other items for fear of double dipping in later seasons and the facts about this show are just too interesting to me to pass them up right now so if you'll indulge me i'm fine covering this material here and just know that in a later episode we might re-explore Because the television ghost was broadcast so early on in the development of television, very little remains in the way of documentation to fill in some of the gaps regarding its production and reception. So little, in fact, that sources disagree on when the show premiered. Some say it initially aired in July, others August, and still others as late as September of 1931. In fact, because the technology itself was so crude at the time no recordings remain of the show whatsoever and that's not very odd because with very few exceptions, no television programs before 1948 have any kind of remaining recordings to speak of. What we do have for the television ghost are contemporary newspaper listings and promotional items, including a press photo of the actor George Kelting in the white makeup and ghost wardrobe. Some of the newspaper stories about it allude to Kelting running around the CBS building in his his costume scaring people for fun. There are reports of someone fainting from being so frightened by him. It's unclear if this was someone watching the show on television or an employee at the CBS building. In 1932, Kelting was replaced by singer and harmonica player Artels Dixon. The show ended in 1933, presumably February, when W2XAB was taken off the air after CBS decided to suspend their television experiments due to the Great Depression. Now, to add a little context for how young the medium was at the time, every episode of The Television Ghost was only 15 minutes long, and it was usually followed by a program called Piano Lessons, which was, you guessed it, an instructional show on how to play the piano. Now, of course, television ghost was by no means the first example of America's fascination with the spirit realm, which can be traced back to the 18th century with Emanuel Swedenborg and Franz Mesmer and the Protestant Second Great Awakening of upstate New York, which all served as precursors to the spiritualism movement, which was born from the Fox sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox. It caught on with Quakers and other progressives who were unhappy with conservative churches and were trying trying to bring about reform. As an unorganized movement, spiritualism was popular in both the United States and the United Kingdom, mostly with middle and upper-class people, especially women. Lectures, conventions, and summer camps attracted thousands of enthusiasts. In 1882, the Society for Psychical Research was founded, and by the 1920s, the spiritualism movement had basically split into three different directions, including notable for the purposes of our podcast, parapsychology, and the growing field of casual and hobbyist interest in parapsychology definitely paved the way for the television ghost. Now, what's especially interesting to me about this program is that it was a dramatic show, maybe the first dramatic show on television, at a time where most programming was what we would consider to be reality-based at this point, or at the very least non-narrative. And reality-based programming would at some point become the house that paranormal interests live in. So much, in fact, that it would get to the point where narrative storylines about the paranormal would utilize the conventions and formats of reality-based storytelling and non-narrative programming in innovative ways. Now, as far as what we consider to be reality television today is concerned, reality TV has its roots in radio. In 1948, ABC gave us the first non-instructive, non-educational reality television show in The Candid Microphone. Creator Alan Funt, who also created the radio show that The Candid Microphone was an adaptation of, moved the show from ABC to NBC in 1949 and changed the name to Candid Camera. Now, of course, in the subgenre of reality, this belongs in the sub-subgenre of prank show. We're still a ways away from getting dramatic reality-based programming. Around this same time, in the late '40s and early '50s, television was populated by sitcom families. You had Mary Kay and Johnny, Ozzie and Harriet, I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners. So the viewing public's fascination with watching families that they felt could represent them was already well established. In 1953, Ray Brad novel Fahrenheit 451, originally published in Playboy magazine, predicted dramatic reality television, specifically working with the theme of a viewer's need to live vicariously through the people they watch. What we would call reality-based programming at this time was mostly competitive or informative. It was game shows, prank shows, interviews without any sense of heightened drama, and even true crime programs that would serve as pretty notable precursors to stuff like cops that we would see later. In 1964, the Up series began with its first film, Seven Up. The Up series is an ongoing series of made-for-television documentary films following the lives of the same 14 people every seven years. Originally produced by Granada for ITV in the UK, Seven Up began with 14 seven-year-olds. And over the last 49 years, there have been eight episodes. This was pretty revolutionary. But because a new installment is only produced every seven years, despite its ambition, it doesn't really get to scratch that itch. And in 1964, it wouldn't have satisfied the things that we talk about when we talk about why people watch reality television. But in 1971, former newsreel editor and television writer Craig Gilbert turned producer and, with a camera crew, began documenting the lives of the Loud family in Santa Barbara, California... Filmed between May and December of 1971, an American family ended up chronicling the turmoil and dissolution of the family and the subsequent divorce of Bill and Pat Loud. The finished product was edited down from 300 hours of footage and aired on PBS in 1973 with 12 hour-long episodes. Notably, it contains possibly the first coming out of a gay teenager on television, and it inspired a similar BBC show called The Family in 1974, and really, without argument, served as the prototype for dramatic, reality-based television. In that same year, viewers who wanted something a little more novel or fantastic than the real life struggles of an American family were treated to a program that would eventually serve as a Blueprint for paranormal tabloid television when Alan Landsberg's In Search of Ancient Astronauts premiered based on the book Chariots of the Gods. Two years later, in 1975, Landsberg would produce two more specials in the In Search Of line. In Search Of Ancient Mysteries and The Outer Space Connection. All three were hosted and narrated by The Twilight Zone's Rod Serling. Now, these three specials were so successful that Landsberg ended up producing a regular series called in search of. However, by the time the regular series was underway, Rod Serling had died, and to replace him, Landsberg cast Leonard Nimoy as the host and narrator of the show. Nimoy's status among science fiction fans won the show an enthusiastic wide audience, and it became a success, running from 1977 until 1982. Nimoy himself even ended up writing an episode that presented previously unknown information about vincent van gogh's possible epilepsy and though in search of would basically set the format for paranormal tabloid shows for the next couple decades inspiring shows like arthur c Clarke's mysterious world secrets and mysteries sightings encounters unsolved mysteries the unexplained and a slew of others, it was not the first show of its kind. All the way back in 1959, ABC premiered a show called One Step Beyond. And if you're thinking the year 1959 sounds familiar for another reason, you're right, but also you should know One Step Beyond actually premiered a full nine months before The Twilight Zone. And even though it would have paired well with that show and probably shared some audience with it due to the supernatural subject matter One Step Beyond was not a fictional narrative series. It was a docudrama series, and it covered topics like premonition, astral projection, ghosts, and psychic powers. It was directed and hosted by John Newland, and it ran for 96 episodes until it was canceled in 1961. In that final season, the episode The Sacred Mushroom, which dealt with mind-altering drugs and shamanism, despite being one of the most popular episodes of the series, Series was so controversial that it was omitted from syndication. And it broke the show's regular dramatization format and was just shot and edited in a purely documentary style. Are you ready for one more Twilight Zone connection? Well, regular contributor to The Twilight Zone, writer Charles Beaumont, actually wrote two episodes of One Step Beyond, even though all of the episodes were purportedly based on quote-unquote human record. But it really was In Search Of that set what we now know of as paranormal television. And if you watch the 18th episode from In Search Of's first season titled Ghosts, featuring parapsychologist, ghost hunter... Hans Holzer, you'll basically see everything that we still see in ghost hunting and paranormal shows today. Advances in the technology and changes in the culture notwithstanding. More or less around this same time, the fame-seeking psychic and demonologist couple... Ed and Lorraine Warren are gaining notoriety. In fact, it was the year before In Search of went to regular series that the Warrens made headlines with the Amityville story, a story that would three years later be made into a movie starring James Brolin, Margot Kidder, and Rod Steiger. And we know that movie, we know that story, there's quite a bit out there on it. And I'm not going to delve into it too much here, but it just goes to further show that this is a time of widespread fascination with supernatural subjects and paranormal phenomena and the occult in general. We had seen films like The Exorcist and The Legend of Hell House and The Haunting and other haunted house movies that had sort of evolved from the old dark house subgenre, which itself had roots in live theater and gothic literature. And I don't want to go too much down this road because I will at some point do a season about haunted house movies or ghost movies and we'll cover all that including yes 1944's The Uninvited but Amityville and the rising popularity of the Warrens and the In Search of Ghosts episode are all notable here in this discussion because haunted house films of the past had sort of taken the more ghost hunter approach to the subject matter featuring experts or scientists or detectives investigating haunted houses or unlucky heirs inheriting grand estates containing ghosts. But along with The Exorcist, the Amityville story was about a regular American family experiencing frightening paranormal phenomena in their own home. They didn't have to go looking for it, it came to them. And furthermore, it was a story purported to be true and i know i've said this before on this show but considering that even at this point home movie filmmaking was already a thing. I find it just amazing that we still have yet to see a found footage narrative ghost movie. It really boggles the mind. But, moving forward into the 80s, we have the premiere of Unsolved Mysteries in 1988, which took the format established by In Search Of and One Step Beyond, kind of mushed them together, and then added the wrinkle of a call-in tip line, where viewers could report any information they might have about the stories being shown before America's Most Wanted did it. Unsolved Mysteries evolved from a series of seven specials originally created by John Cosgrove and Terry Dunmuir that ran respectively in 1986 and 1987. One of them was hosted by Raymond Burr, another two were hosted by Carl Malden, and then Robert Stack was brought on, who would go on to become the regular series host. Host. these specials featured segments of cold cases and paranormal phenomenon the show ran for nine seasons on its original home NBC before it moved to CBS for two seasons when it was canceled after Virginia Madsen was added as a co-host it was revived again by a lifetime in 2000 and was canceled again on 2002 after Robert Stack became ill and eventually died six years later in 2008 Spike TV brought it back with Dennis Farina this This thing ran forever. It was the show that would not die, and if you don't remember it, it was very special for people like me who were kids in the 80s and 90s. The theme song still haunts me. Unsolved Mysteries has a track record of solving a lot of its mysteries as well. Over 100 families have been reunited, partly because of the show. It's estimated that of its wanted fugitive segments, more than half of those have been resolved and the show's youtube channel has remained active as recently as a few months ago providing updates on unsolved cases and you can still submit your own stories to the show's official website at www.unsolved.com and now it looks like netflix is bringing the show back in the same year that unsolved mysteries went to regular series 1988 The show Cops premiered. And yes, that fits more into probably the kind of stuff we were talking about in episode three regarding themes of morbid curiosity and shock footage. But it serves as kind of a bridge between those concepts and this idea of people perhaps watching reality television for the human drama of it all. It would be easy to dismiss Cops as police state propaganda or poverty porn, and the show itself is very othering and problematic, definitely. But what recent studies reveal about the psychological reasons for watching reality television, I think can carve out some space in that show as well. And We'll get to that in a moment. But it might also be worth mentioning that the show Cops was really a response to the 1988 writer's strike. It was a way for a network to make cheaper content with high dramatic stakes without really risking anything and without having to hire writers. This is a little bit ominous because yes, about 10 years later another writer's strike would lead to a lot more reality-based programming taking over television sets. And in the wake of the success of Cops, a lot of shows did follow that thread. You had Rescue 911, Code 3, and shows like it. There's also something of Cops in a lot of the current ghost hunt reality shows and the attitude of its agents and the approach to the material and of course footnote here in 1989 we have ufo abduction which finally sees the merging of the home movie tradition and narrative storytelling rooted in our fascination with the paranormal it just happened to be aliens and not ghosts but that's just a footnote because we're still in the reality television lane right now and despite the impact and legacy of 1973's An American Family, which included the aforementioned BBC show The Family, Albert Brooks's 1979 spoof of reality television Real Life, which was definitely inspired by the show, and a 1983 reunion special, which was broadcast on HBO. No one really carried that torch through the 80s. It wasn't until 1992, nearly 20 years after that initial show, that MTV would draw inspiration from it for the real world. Now, this time, the drama was created by putting seven strangers together in a house, which is definitely more of a guarantee for sensational content than just following around a family with a camera crew. Of course, The show was a huge success and ran for 21 years, making it the longest-running program in MTV history. Five years after the premiere of The Real World, Survivor, first aired. And three years after that, in 2000, Big Brother, based on a Netherlands series from 1999, aired. Both shows taking the drama of the real world and incorporating a competition element. Big Brother even going so far as to make that competition viewer interactive. Now, I don't need to extrapolate too much on these shows because they're not horror, but they do have a place in the history that we're talking about. Because as we move into a period where the conventions of both reality television and paranormal tabloid television start to merge, and we even get horror features that play with the same tools of each, I think it's important to take a look at why reality television shows like these are so popular. There's this there's this pretty standard conception among folks who do not watch reality television that it's lowbrow or serves to satisfy more base impulses as more and more reality-based content is produced covering all kinds of different subjects including niche interests and the communities surrounding those interests and by and large seems to focus on human drama and relationships and socialization to different degrees this is less and less the case but for a while Despite being wildly popular, the reality format was kind of seen as less than scripted television drama, and there are some valid reasons for that, but one that's debatable is the notion that people watch reality TV because they want to see others humiliated, or they feel a compulsion to indulge some voyeuristic desires. And because humans are complex creatures, and our society is kind of a clusterfuck, there's arguments to be made for that. And I do think it's irresponsible and potentially dangerous to make reality television stars into celebrities. I think we have already seen some pretty awful consequences of that but that's that's just another discussion A number of recent psychological surveys and studies have come to show that the fascination with reality-based programming has less to do with an innate voyeurism or the schadenfreude of watching another human being humiliated, and more to do with empathy and a need to relate, as it is with all drama. And yes, there are shades of the discussion about shock footage here, but these shades are a little lighter. Everybody desires attention on some level. And watching someone on a reality television show, you are giving them that attention. And it feels almost like you can live vicariously through them as a result. And much in the same way that even the most purely observational documentarian filmmaker must acknowledge that simply by observing, they are influencing their subjects and adding another layer of relationship. I mean, this is nothing new. This is physics. By the act of observing, the observer is having an effect on the observed reality. And because of that, by viewing subjects on a reality television show, a viewer feels a connection, an amount of attention, reciprocated, perhaps subconsciously. But talk to any sports fan who has a specific team they root for, and you'll see the same kind of thing. Now, as far as empathy and character identification or understanding are concerned that's also nothing new I brought up sitcoms before for decades and decades sitcoms were the most popular form of entertainment on television pretty much always featuring an ensemble cast of characters without the brunt of the focus given to any one character sitcoms observed the group dynamic whether it's about families or co-workers or people who hang out at the same bar together. And because there were so many, I mean, seriously, I could just do an episode where I do nothing but list sitcoms that ran for more than one season, and it would be like two hours long. I'm not going to do that, of course, but my point is, there have been so many that many different walks of life and types of family or types of group have been given an opportunity to be represented on some level, and we love them. We eat them up. Before DVD and streaming and before binge-watching outside of syndicated marathons was really a concept, Americans would tune in week after week to check in on their favorite groups of people, to follow their lives and storylines and relationships. Yes, ostensibly for laughs, because sitcom is short for situational comedy, but in The Good Ones, there was no shortage of relatable human drama. Now, the type of reality television we're talking about when we invoke things like Big Brother or The Real World tap into that same core but with the added weight of it being presumably real. There is an added profundity when someone on television, even if just through a soundbite, reflects your values or ideas without it having been scripted. And even when it is scripted, realistic portrayals of family life and human relationships contain gravity that is felt in the real world. After Ingmar Bergman's 1973 TV miniseries Scenes from a Marriage, which is something of a spiritual precursor to Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, and whose premise, despite being fictional, feels like something of a mashup between the Up series and An American Family, in that in its nearly five-hour runtime, it tracks ten years in the life of a married couple. But allegedly after it aired in 1973, divorce rates in Sweden increased substantially, and the number of couples seeking marriage counseling nearly doubled. Bergman himself had to change his phone number because he was bombarded by calls from couples who were seeking his advice. So, anyway, right around the time that reality television was just starting to have its boom, studios were looking at the success of the Blair Witch Project and kind of scratching their heads. They knew it had done something different and had caught on with the public through virtue of that, but couldn't quite get a handle on how to replicate it. And with a few exceptions in the ensuing years that were mostly just traditional narrative horror movies, Employing a found footage component, usually through the filter of internet media or reality television in narrative devices, they didn't even really try. No, the first wave of found footage filmmakers inspired by the Blair Witch Project were pretty much entirely in the low budget indie realm. And for the most part, none of these films inspired by The Blair Witch Project's success really stood out in any exceptional way or gained enough attention to bring on the found footage boom. And before we get into these films, I'd like to explore a couple other things. First of all, since we're on the subject of The Blair Witch Project, I want to talk about the sequel for a minute, because the development story behind it is kind of a kick in the pants and a punch in the gut simultaneously. Of course, Artisan wanted to get work on a sequel immediately. Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick initially wanted to do a prequel set in the 1700s about Ellie Kedward, the woman who is a of witchcraft in the film's mythology. The two had planned to make it using colonial speech and natural lighting. Gee, I wonder what that sounds like proving they had no foresight whatsoever, Artisan said that no one wanted that. So Sanchez and Mirrick went off to make a comedy instead. And so to direct the sequel, Artisan hired Joe Berlinger, the documentary filmmaker behind Brothers Keeper and the Paradise Lost films. Only, they didn't want him to do a found footage movie or a pseudo-documentary. Interesting. They rushed the film into production in January of 2000 to meet an October 2000 release date. The initial film's success provided the studio with tie-ins galore, including comic books, television specials, young adult novels, toys, and even Taco Bell for some reason. Ben Rock, who worked on the first film, was hired to write a Bible to keep track of all the various franchise properties, and to write and direct a pair of special tie-in programs for the sequel for both Showtime and the Sci-Fi Channel. The first of these was The Burkittsville Seven. It was inspired by Frederick Wiseman's Titty Cut Follies and Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, and it was a pseudo-documentary about the Rustin Parr case referenced in the first film. the second of these, called Shadow of the Blair Witch, was supposed to be a pseudo doc about weird happenings on the set of the sequel while it was in production. And from what I understand, he'd even shot some footage for it. But then the studio told him to make it in the style of, get this, Paradise Lost, and to make it about the murders that took place in the sequel. Which makes no sense, because spoilers, But also, why would you get the director of Paradise Lost to make your movie, tell him he can't do what he does, and then hire someone else to make what is essentially a commercial for that movie in the style of the movie directed by the guy you're not letting do what he does? (sighs) It just boggles the mind. Anyway, we know what happened with The Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, it sucks. And that's really all we need to say about it. It did what it did, it killed the potential franchise before it could really get going, and bears nothing in the way of influence on the films that were inspired by the initial film. Did I say that right? Does that make sense? It did nothing in the way to inspire the films inspired by the original film, whatever. And before we move into those, the other thing I wanted to bring up was the birth of an entirely new format, utilizing a somewhat new medium. In 2001, while these smattering of independent films inspired by the Blair Witch Project are being developed, produced, or even in some cases released... A page went up on the custom website host, Angelfire, called Ted the Caver. Utilizing a somewhat neo-epistolary format, including dated journal entries and uploaded photographs, Ted the Caver told the first-person story of a man and his friend discovering a cave that led to a previously unexplored tunnel system full of terror. And thus, the online literary genre now known as creepypasta was born. Before Ted the Caver, horror entertainment on the web was pretty much entirely relegated to click-through or flash games and chain emails featuring embellished versions of urban legends. Some of these spread through Usenet groups. But Ted the Caver not only changed literary horror fiction, it did so by taking the tropes of epistolary novels and folktales and applying them to an entirely new landscape and filtering them through new technology. A full five years before the term copypasta even first appeared on Usenet. Of course, now Creepypasta has evolved to the point that it has its own wiki, countless YouTube channels and podcasts devoted to it, and even a linear cable television show inspired by some of its most notable examples in the recently unfortunately canceled Channel Zero. The kayfabe preserving sleep subreddit has more than 4 million subscribers. It seems that Creepypasta is here to stay. But back when Ted the Caver was first posted, before there was even a name for what it was, as is often the case with new and innovative cultural items, especially those that give birth to a movement. While filmmakers and studios were struggling with where to take the recently-arrived format of found-footage horror, the author of Ted the Caver found its next logical evolutionary step outside of film or television by, in a way, taking it back to its epistolary literary roots. It's all here. The first-person perspective, the implication of reality, and in the photos themselves, amateur presentation of the imagery. And despite how surprising it may be that it took this long for the concept of found footage and horror narratives to find each other, it would only make sense that creepypasta and found footage horror would learn how to run while holding hands. And just really quick before we move on, Ted the Caver is still available online. Actually called Ted's Caving Page, you can find it at www angelfire.com slash trek slash caver slash page1.html It's also archived on the Creepypasta wiki. Okay, with that said, let's talk about where Blair Witch Project got us. The first film of note to follow on the heels of the Blair Witch Project is the St. Francisville Experiment from 2000. The production history of this film is pretty interesting. If you go to the IMDB page, you'll notice that... No one is credited with writing it. That's probably because it was initially developed as an actual documentary. Now, it's kind of difficult to sort out exactly where the development of this film began, according to director Ted Niccolo, who is from Poughkeepsie, New York. You might recognize his name From Full Moon Entertainment, he edited Tourist Trap, he directed Subspecies and Bad Channels, and one of my personal favorites, Terror Vision. But he actually got his start working in film on the set of 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Anyway, according to him, Charles Band had sold the concept for this film to the Kushner Locke financing company. According to ghost historian, author, and co-host of the American Hauntings podcast, Troy Taylor, however, he and another writer had developed the project as a documentary where four young people would spend the night in an allegedly haunted house. From what I understand, it might have had something to do with the true story of Delphine LaLaurie. She was a notorious figure in the dark history of New Orleans. She famously tortured and murdered a number of slaves in the years leading up to 1834, as if slave ownership didn't make her evil enough. Her mansion was one of the homes owned by Nicolas Cage, and she was the character played by Kathy Bates in the third season of American Horror Story. And the St. Francisville experiment did end up using the Delphine LaLaurie story as the basis for the supposed haunting in the film. It's unclear whether that was the initial intent. Because what happened was when they started filming in Louisiana, or maybe right before they started filming in Louisiana, a bunch of people from the original production were fired. And the day before the shoot, Ted Nicola was brought in. Basically, Charles Band approached him and said, hey, do you want to oversee this shoot in New Orleans? He went out there. They spent a night with this cast in this house, According to Troy Taylor, who plays the ghost hunter in the movie, at some point it just kind of all went off the rails. Uh, Nicolau was apparently sitting in a trailer watching the footage unfold, not really actually directing, but more overseeing from a distance. Taylor and the other writer were, I guess, banned from going into the trailer at one point. But regardless, the bulk of the footage was shot that night in that house. The footage was then brought back to Los Angeles, and then editing and reshoots ensued. And after all these reshoots, three different houses had been used for the location, turning what was, I guess, supposed to be actual footage of people spending a night in a haunted house into a fictional narrative film with the found footage format. It seems pretty clear that this was a Blair Witch Project cash-in. When you watch it, its budget was $250,000, and the resulting film is a mess. And from how the film was originally marketed when it was released direct-to-DVD in April of 2000, they were leaning very much into the this is a true story, this is, this really happened, watch this recovered footage. All of it reeked of Blair Witch Project ripoff. Another notable item about the St. Francisville experiment for horror fans, the trailer was narrated by Poltergeist's Zelda Rubenstein. The film is such a mess, in fact, that in 2011, Troy Taylor hosted a screening of the film where he had a mic and just riffed over it, providing live, heckling commentary. I've seen it. It's not very memorable, but it's out there if you want to check it out. It might be interesting to watch with this bit of the developmental history in mind. But yeah, it's the first notable film to come in the wake of the Blair Witch Project. It's kind of difficult to say what's next in this timeline, because the details surrounding a lot of the films we're going to talk about in this section are kind of hazy, there's conflicting information, and it's hard to know where the authorities are. Depending on who you trust, the next film might be the 909 experiment, it might be the Collingswood story, it might even be the Black Door. We're going to talk about all of them. The 909 Experiment is another one that if you visit the IMDb page, you'll notice something that speaks to a problem. The director and star Wayne A. Smith has not made another film. There is no information about the making of this film available online. The closest thing to any credible information from a source involved with the film's production is a snarky comment left in the comments section of a negative review of the movie. The comment was left under the name Wayne, and one might reasonably or unreasonably assume that that is Wayne A. Smith, the film's director. Most sources place this film's production in 2000. There is another comment in that comment section of that negative review that says the film predates Blair Witch Project, which is kind of difficult to believe. The film was never distributed. In that comment section, there is reference to a single screening of it in Hollywood Hollywood. Hollywood at one point. Definitely copies were made because it is available on YouTube. And if you watch it there, it will become very clear very quickly why this film was not distributed and why you've never heard of it. So, why are we talking about it now? Good question. It is Pretty bad but it's notable because it does predate a lot of found footage tropes that come into play and you find them in this film before they appeared in later films there's use of surveillance camera footage there is constant use of the term paranormal activity speaking of paranormal activity this movie has a lot of things in common with paranormal activity. Now, it's difficult to know if this film in any way inspired Oren Peli's paranormal activity because... Kelly has certainly never acknowledged it, and it would be just as easy to believe that he's never heard of it, because very few people have ever heard of it. But there are a number of striking similarities in the plot and the characters of the 909 experiment. Now, the movie's central story is that this couple takes part in a study to determine whether or not electromagnetic energy can cause people to hallucinate or create the circumstances of paranormal phenomenon that we associate with hauntings classically. And guess what? It doesn't go well. Dude apparently gets possessed by some sort of demonic force and commits a murder after a whole lot of really uninspired dialogue spoken by two leads who have absolutely no chemistry together and largely unconvincing cheaply executed poltergeist effects the kind of stuff you would see in youtube ghost videos remember those but this does precede those which i guess is worth something if you can get past the seven minute long opening sequence with just a terrible song where the characters are driving to Lake Arrowhead? That's right, it's called the 909 Experiment, but it doesn't take place in the 909. No Rancho Cucamonga, no Inland Empire. Sorry, but if you can get past that opening sequence, and if you can get past all of the contradictions, all of the really nonsensical redactions, it's an interesting curiosity simply because of all of the stuff it has that becomes standards in the format and subgenre later. But yeah, beyond that, there's really no reason to watch it. This brings us to the Collingswood story. And you might start to notice a trend with these films that we don't talk about them a lot. They don't get a lot of attention. They don't get very wide distribution if they get any distribution at all. It's very odd to me that in the wake of Blair Witch Project, these films get made and then kind of don't go anywhere. They don't become part of a movement. And later on, they kind of don't become part of the conversation, but they did exist. They were made. In some ways, they may have influenced the tide of found footage horror to come but in their times, they don't get a lot of mainstream recognition. The Collingswood story did get a lot of attention in online horror communities. Director Michael Costanza reportedly started developing the idea in 2000, and he was, by his own admission, inspired by the Blair Witch Project. Michael Costanza had made a short film called Mama Said, and even though it was nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes and played the Sundance Film Festival And on the Sundance channel, he wasn't having a lot of success getting the resources he needed to make a feature. Frustrated by this, he decided to do something in the found footage realm so that he wouldn't need a lot of help and he could do it on his own. Taking a story from his youth of an alleged haunted house in Collingswood, New Jersey, he started work on developing a story about a long-distance relationship succumbing to a supernatural evil force. What is very notable about this film is that for the format, he chose webcams. This was in 2000, before Skype, before every laptop had a camera in it, in a time when video conferencing was still mostly the privilege of business people. Webcam technology was so young, in fact, that Costanza didn't actually use any webcams to shoot the movie. It was shot on high 8 and then later made to look like webcam footage in post, including some desktop stuff, making this the first desktop found footage horror movie, predating Unfriended, The Den, and Searching by over a decade. The story concerns Rebecca and Johnny, a couple who decide to stay together after Rebecca goes off to college in Collingswood. Johnny buys her a webcam so that they can stay in touch with each other to bridge that distance while she's away. He also, however, decides to play a prank on her for her birthday by getting a psychic involved in their video conferencing and... Paranormal hijinks ensue, including a really creepy Halloween shaker toy that provides the film with its best horror beat. Interesting side note, Stephanie Dees, who plays Rebecca in the film, has another horror credit. In 1988's Halloween 4, she's the red-headed girl in the penguin costume who bullies Jamie. You know, boogeyman, boogeyman, Jamie's uncle's the boogeyman, Jamie's an orphan, Jamie's an orphan and what have you. Now, just like UFO abduction, this film's unpolished, arguably amateur style and crude found footage format kept it from securing any kind of distribution. Much like Dean Aliato, Costanza was more or less dismissed in his efforts. Not one to take it lying down, he started self-distributing the film to horror websites. Through that, it got a lot of positive Press online and led to the film being screened at Frightfest in London in 2005. The film then went on to play and receive awards at a number of other genre film festivals, and in 2006, Anchor Bay put out a Region 2 DVD of it. The film was shot in 10 days, and Costanza estimates the shooting budget at 10000 with a post-budget of what he said is five times that. The interview where I saw that, I couldn't tell if he was joking or not. And of the films that we're discussing here, the Collingswood story is the one that gets discussed the most, probably because it isn't an obvious Blair Witch cash-in, and the director really believed in it. And as long as we're invoking paranormal activity in discussions of a lot of these films, a According to Michael Costanza, interest in the Collingswood story and in him as a filmmaker led to him having a pitch meeting with the producers of Paranormal Activity when a Paranormal Activity sequel was being developed in 2010. Allegedly, he was there to pitch both a remake of the Collingswood story and how he would approach a Paranormal Activity sequel, and they passed on his ideas. But in 2013, Michael Costanza filed a lawsuit lawsuit against the producers of Paranormal Activity, alleging that Paranormal Activity 4 lifted ideas from his pitch. Since then, the lawsuit has been resolved in Costanza's words amicably, and he's now looking to release a Blu-ray of the Collingswood story. The last film that bears mentioning in the wake of Blair Witch Project discussion is a film that I wouldn't even know about were it not for Alexandra Heller-Nicholas's book, Found Footage Horror Film's Fear and the Appearance of Reality, and that film is 2001's The Black Door. It's a Canadian film directed by Kit Wong, who has no other feature credits as a director, The story concerns a woman named Meg, who has a documentary crew investigate the causes behind her boyfriend Stephen's recent hospitalization. The crew ends up uncovering a satanic cult. Now, this is one that I have not seen, but from what I understand, much like 909 Experiment, it bears some similarity in both narrative devices and subject matter to paranormal activity and films that would spring from its popularity. Now, unlike Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity, The Black Door is a pseudo-doc featuring a found footage component within it, so more in the vein of something like Last Broadcast, or Curse of the Blair Witch, or today's featured discussion film, Lake Mungo. In the ensuing years leading up to paranormal activity, most of the found footage and pseudo-doc films that we see are more concerned with the horrors of the real that we were talking about in episode 3. With only a few notable exceptions, one of them is 2005's Noroi The Curse, directed by Koji Shiraishi. The Curse is a found-footage pseudo-documentary that takes sort of the cannibal holocaust approach of presenting the footage of a paranormal expert who has disappeared within the framework of a larger pseudo-documentary. The subject matter and themes at work here are pure J-horror, although by working in this pseudo-documentary format, the normally surrealistic or sometimes dreamlike qualities of these themes become much more grounded and even complex in the presentation. Furthermore, it boasts quite a large cast for a found footage offering, making this film one of the most innovative examples of of both J-horror and found footage horror. It incorporates other found footage elements and materials in its primary found footage component, including news footage. And in its impressive production design and formatted approach, provides a weaving and layered investigation into what would normally be on paper a rather simple premise, while simultaneously capturing a very cemented-in reality observation Look at what would normally be a stylized presentation of the themes of paranoia, helplessness, and doom. It has its own little version of the Blair Witch twig figures in loops of yarn that would normally be played as a stinger or horror beat, but here feel more like something you would just see on In Search of. Plus, it's got magic and rituals and a curse, so I love it. I don't want to give away too much. I think you should just just watch it. It's currently streaming on Shudder. So if you've got that subscription, check it out. When software designer Oren Pelley was living in San Diego, he and his girlfriend at the time started experiencing some unusual goings-on in their home. Frightened by these events, Pelly considered setting up a camera in his home to document these things and try to make sense of them. He never got around to it, but in 2006, inspired by the Blair Witch Project and Open Water, Oren Pelly, who had no previous experience with filmmaking, bought a camera for $3,000 and started making Paranormal Activity, casting actors Katie Featherston and Micah Sloat. Sloat, having had experience as a cameraman, would prove to be very valuable, Pelly did not write a script, but gave the actors a basic story outline and situations to improvise, much in the same way as Blair Witch Project, in a technique that would later come to be called retroscripting. Pelly says he was inspired by the relationship between the two leads on the British television series Faulty Towers, and drew upon that. Once again hinting at the historically recognized connection between comedy and horror. After seven days of shooting, Pelly began going through the footage to find the story. This would take him a year. When all was said and done, he had edited together an 86-minute long film documenting a couple in supernatural peril, resulting in demonic possession and tragedy. Like the last broadcast, The Blair Witch Project, and the Collingswood story before it, Pelly took paranormal activity to the festivals. In October of 2007, it premiered at Screamfest in LA. The screening resulted in Pelle getting signed on by CAA for representation. In 2008, the film played at Slamdance. After being rejected by a number of distributors, Miramax senior executive Jason Blum, who had previously passed on the Blair Witch Project and was eager to snap up something new in the fright genre, was impressed by the film, as were executives at DreamWorks including Steven Spielberg, who made a deal with Blum and Pelley to remake the film on a bigger budget. Due to fallout from the previous Paramount acquisition of DreamWorks and several changes in approach that essentially amounted to what else is new, executives not knowing what to do with an innovative film. Paranormal Activity essentially just sat around for a while until former DreamWorks executive and champion of the film Steve Goodman became production chief at Paramount and here Paramount's online marketing department had a stroke of genius and the film was slated for a fall 2009 release with a slow rollout Beginning with twelve college cities in late September of two thousand nine, paranormal activity started to gradually sell out its screenings and open wider and wider until October when utilizing the when utilizing the word of mouth and viral marketing potential demonstrated by Blair Witch Project, but in a more grassroots do your part fashion, devoid of all of the this is real kayfabe, footage of audience reactions to screenings of Paranormal Activity, and a Tweet Your Scream campaign, and a Demand It Play in Your City button helped the film capture the attention of the public. And let's be honest, this is most likely nothing more than a marketing campaign. With show after show selling out, Paramount had little to lose going wide with Paranormal Activity's release. And either way, the gambit paid off big. The film grossed $193 million domestic, and $577 million worldwide on just a $15,000 budget filmed in seven days by a man who had no previous filmmaking experience. If the Collingswood story is an example of fortitude and networking ambition, unrewarded, paranormal activity is your best case scenario. Orin Peli himself credits his actors for the film's success. I personally think it runs a little deeper than that, I think that at this point, reality television, paranormal tabloid television, audiences' hunger for human drama, and lack of exposure to that drama in the service of scares, all came together to make paranormal activity the success that it is, leading to five follow-up films in the franchise, and an ensuing found-footage horror boom, with studios throwing new attention at micro-budget filmmaking. By 2000, 2009 reality television had figured out a way to scratch the group dynamic and social relationship itch of the american sitcom and because horror and comedy play in similar areas of neurological arousal and both work with a challengingly specific purpose it was high time for a married couples relationship strife to take on the form of of evil spirits in a found footage reality-based format. All the way back in 1931, the television ghost gave supernatural voice to the fictional dead through a man in white makeup and a sheet. And now, the found footage format was presenting the stories of the fictional dead not through the dramatizations of unsolved mysteries, but consumer end home video and surveillance footage. And around this same time, Across the globe in Australia, a man named Joel Anderson was asking questions about what this all means. Which leads us to today's featured film for discussion. So let's talk to Adam Todd Brown about Lake Mungo. However, I should caution you, this conversation will feature pretty heavy spoilers. So if you haven't already seen the movie, be aware of that.
0: Should we talk about Lake Mungo? Yes. You, ever, guess, you yeah. ever seen it? Nah, never heard of it. It's a it's a movie.
1: <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's
0: a movie. It's an Australian it's movie, an Austra- mate. It's
1: an Australian movie. Th- uh,
0: Put another shrimp on the Barbie Outback Steakhouse. Come on, that's not a knife. <laughs>
1: this is a knife. That's not. <laughs> that's what Lake Mungo's subtitle is. That's not a ghost. This is a ghost. <laughs> And if you've seen the movie, that actually makes a lot of sense. It makes a whole lot of sense, yeah. Because there's a whole lot of that's not a ghost instances. Right. Lake Mungo,
0: 2008. 2008, available to stream all over the place now. Yes. It was hard to find for a while. You have to rent it.
1: You can see it for free on Tubi TV. But there's commercials, and you don't want to watch commercials. commercials. Exactly, and I would highly recommend watching this movie, if you've never seen it before, to watch it without commercials. Yeah, you because can rent they, it for cheap. Because I watched it on Tubi TV, because I'd seen it before. So watching it on Tubi TV, the commercials weren't that big a distraction for me. But I did notice that they pop up. At the worst fucking times in right. the movie, those things come in and just really break the tension. Or
0: if you're the kind of person who can't not be on your phone for ninety minutes, maybe watch it with commercials and just put your phone down while the movie yeah. is on.
1: And then pick because it up this the is
0: not a movie you can
1: watch no. while you're fucking around, you on really your phone. have to pay attention to this movie, right? Yeah.
0: Otherwise, it's not only going to not make sense; it's going to be a little boring you have to focus
1: yeah but it's a great movie it's fantastic yeah yeah it's i think it's I not think, an
0: action film it's not gory it's not bloody
1: i think of the films that we've discussed for the feature discussion portions sure. of these episodes this is the best one so far have we talked about apollo 18 i'm glad we're getting this out <laughs> of the way now
0: so no okay then yes <clears throat>
1: yes so, so far this is Until is so un- far until we have the apollo until 8. we
0: unravel everything happening
1: until we do the four-part Apollo right. 18 episode Because
0: you have to do the episode and then the influences like the God things that it. were inspired yeah. yeah, I really have to get, Apollo I really have
1: to get Dan Carlin hardcore history <laughs> and deep dive into Apollo 18. Jesus fucking Christ.
0: So we start with space. Let's talk about what that is. <laughs>
1: The first episode is just... just (laughs) The the, Big Bang Theory. Just reading the the transcript from an episode of Cosmos. The old Cosmos, not the... Right. Neil de Harasser Tyson... De de Harass. No, the old Carl Sagan. Yeah, anyway, this is... Okay, (laughs) Lake Mungo is an Australian film from 2008, written and directed by Joel Anderson, who is an interesting figure because... He has no other feature credits. This is his first film, and as far as I know, it's his only film. It's always interesting to me when that happens. Yeah, right? Doesn't happen a lot. that Someone comes onto the scene, makes arguably the best or one of the best found footage horror movies, and then fucking vanishes. Right. It's crazy. Is there any word on why that happened, or where he went so it turns out this whole movie is true oh and cool he was hired by the government to make a oh. movie adaptation of it to throw off the people who
0: were too close to the truth so this is part of the UFO abduction and franchise and
1: then he was yeah and then he was and then he, and then he was disappeared that makes sense <laughs> this is yeah it's UFO abduction part three Lake Mungo yeah so it's a 2008 film most of it was written in 2005 and it was written because Joel Anderson was working on a rewrite for a project that needed a bigger budget and he'd become frustrated and disillusioned with that and so he just started writing this as like what's something i could make cheap did he ever
0: finish that other project
1: apparently not yeah (laughs) because i've not heard anything about it and then he like i guess lost what he had written for this for six months came back was looking for something else, found it, and, oh, then, wow. and then was like, okay, yeah, let's make this. It's the classic story for found footage films of wanted to make something we could do cheap, something we could shoot on weekends, something that we could, you know, find in the editing. Yeah. You know? it, that's the thing that happens a lot with It looks footage. like
0: a movie, like if you're an aspiring filmmaker, it looks like a movie you could make really yeah, it, easily.
1: It does, but it also looks like a movie that you have to be very thoughtful and very knowledgeable and very technically savvy to make. Oh, sure. And that's because Joel Anderson and his crew were all of those things. There wasn't a script for the movie. They had a story outline and scenarios and backstories for each of the characters and then beats that they needed to hit, and that was it.
0: Yeah, that seems like it would be easier.
1: Yeah, well, according to Joel Anderson, it turned out to be hard. It was one of those things that he thought would be easy, but then once oh, we really? were shooting, it was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's going <laughs> well, to... You never
0: know where someone's going to take
1: it. Yeah, and it depends on if you've got actors and if you're trying to... You know, the idea when you're directing a performance is to... Have a verb in mind, and you know the test of whether or not you want to communicate that verb to an actor or let them find it on their own. That's a thing when it comes to traditional right. narrative directing. But here, you know, you, you're basically at the mercy of your act. some actors aren't comfortable with improv, yeah. aren't comfortable embellishing, and some actors will do too much of it. So you have to kind of push it in others and rein it in in others. And it's it's just it's its own thing. And I think it could be easier if everyone's on the same page when you start out. Well, yeah, I think that's that's true with most things yeah but all that aside he made this movie for a little over a million dollars it was i think 1.1 million dollars money from private investors and the australian film commission which is now called screen australia so there was state funding involved here which is great
0: right Um, so this was a real thing that happened yes absolutely
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah there's your government tie-in right there
0: (laughs) a million is a that's more than i expected yes a lot of that had to go into i want to say effects but not really like faking those videos and photos spoiler i mean
1: that had to cost I think it's. I do think it's one of those things where it comes down to they definitely could have done it for cheaper. Yeah, but I feel like it was maybe one of those making sure everyone gets paid because a lot of movies, right. you know, like whether you got you know a back end deal or if you know deferred or you're doing it for credit and copy, like some people are not going to get paid very well. But I think there it was. I don't know. I'd like to think that that's what happened. That like because they had a million dollars and this was a movie, they definitely could have made very well for cheaper, that it was a a situation of like, oh, we're just going to pay everyone really well. Sure. I I hope.
0: Spending government money. Why not?
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. But it's also like, it's one of those things, he had a million dollars, it's a lot of money. It's not, film budget-wise. So because the private investors aren't putting that much money in, and because some of this money is coming from state funding, he doesn't have anyone to answer to, so he kind of had the freedom to do what he wanted with it.
0: I feel like for a found footage movie at that time, though, it was kind of big budget because this was still like around paranormal activity
1: so let's talk about that then let's talk about the time no okay let's not
0: all right fine (laughs) let's do it
1: the time that this came out now we've referenced this a few times in this show about the upcoming found footage explosion that's going to happen this movie was released in America after that Oh. And we talk about 2007 being the big year because that's the year paranormal activity was made here's the thing paranormal activity was made in 2007 it was not released theatrically until 2009 so there was a there's a whole, whole two-year like kind of limbo period where there are still other found footage movies coming out, and the format and the subgenre is sort of gaining momentum up to this explosion. But you have things like Poughkeepsie tapes being pulled from release, Paranormal Activity sort of getting small buzz around festivals and and whatnot. And then you have this movie being made in Australia. It played at the Sydney Film Festival in 2008 before Paranormal Activity's release, but it wasn't released theatrically until 2010 when it was picked up by After Dark Horror Fest. So this is a time when yeah there are a lot of found footage movies being made for very little it's after cloverfield so the idea of spending a lot of money on a found footage movie is not unheard of sure but this is a very different kind of movie oh yeah it's not cloverfield (laughs) it's not even sort of cloverfield it's not even sort of cloverfield this is actually more i think in line with last broadcast and pughy tapes partly because format wise it's definitely a pseudo doc right with, with multiple found footage components as opposed to being a straight, pure, found footage narrative in the vein of Blair Witch Project or UFO abduction. This is a pseudo doc, and the way it's put together is amazing. Like, it definitely looks like Joel Anderson has worked on docs or made docs before because yeah. it's very, the documentary feel of it is very authentic. It's very technically precise.
0: It feels like a
1: documentary. Yeah. And possibly where some of that money went was the multiple found footage components because. They shot on like every kind of medium <laughs> the, <laughs> like, yeah, like they shot on sixteen, they shot on digital, they shot on VHS, they shot on thirty five they shot, on...
0: yeah, it felt like the kids weren't old enough to have been through that many medium switches
1: <laughs> right well, it's that again, it's also that weird time where it's pre blu-ray it's it's like. When Blu-ray and HD are sort of still like there's still HD DVD. That's still a format at at the time this movie was made, and it's before there were still video stores open. Yeah, like it's before all of those completely died off. I mean, there's still video stores open now, but this is like I think Blockbuster and Hollywood Video still had locations at the time that this was made. Right. So VHS is still. I mean, it's no longer a viable format, but it's a thing that exists. So this woman having or this girl having a VHS tape is not unheard of. Yeah.
0: But that like there's scenes that look like there's a Pruder
1: film. Yeah. <laughs> also. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like this kid's like sixteen. Yeah. What's happening? Yeah,
1: there's a wide like it's all over the map as far as video quality is concerned. Like you've got yeah, you've got stuff right. that looks super low res, and then you've got the inserts of the house with like the weird lightning effect going yeah. on. Like is it looks like a music video. It's beautiful. It's so good. Yeah. So they shot it on a lot of different formats. They recorded audio on a lot of different formats. I mean there's right. multiple different audio found footage components so it's a lot went into into that so maybe some of the money went to that and they also shot at locations over the course of the year to capture different seasons to to lend more credibility right. to yeah. this idea of a documentary crew going back and filming at different points in these in in different seasons it's good (laughs) it is really good yeah (laughs) i i just i really like it because it's the it's like if last broadcast was interested in telling you a supernatural story right yeah
0: it's a really effective ghost story yeah
1: it's i think it's effective in so many ways i mean the filmmaker joel anderson has said that he doesn't consider it to be a horror movie or even a supernatural thriller he considers it to be an exploration of grief and it is It definitely is that. And I think that its strength comes from the fact that that's its focus, but it's also a fucking ghost story. Right. For sure it's a ghost story. There there is a ghost. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The and ending makes it very clear it's a ghost story. And the fact that he it's called Lake Mungo and has the Lake Mungo setting as one of its narrative devices is also the oldest human the oldest human remains in Australia were found in Lake Mungo, which is a dry lake in the New South Wales area. So So yeah, it's an ancient it's ancient an burial ancient site. ground. So it, it is a potent setting. It's a potent location for supernatural horror. And for themes that, that come with that. And I like that he, you know, the film might not be focused narratively on that. It might not be concerned with, well, because we never find out what, yeah. what exactly happened, what the thing was, you know. Right. Or if there was any kind of curse or ancient evil or what have you. You can read all of that into it if you want. It's open to that. Yeah.
0: They kind of hint at some weirdness. Yes. Uh, when they find the video on her phone
1: mm-hmm. that's yet, yet another format they shot yeah it was phone video
0: and that's the only part where the movie is like legitimately
1: scary yes i mean it's i bothersome think bothersome throughout and it's, right and there's 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 a suspense
0: throughout but that scene where she's ostensibly filming and then like she walks up to herself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Her doppelganger, her ghost right. from the future approaches her, which is which is an interesting thing that I mean is kind of Lake Mungo is not the first example of that, of the right. idea of ghosts kind of transcending time and space or a time travel component to like a haunting or a paranormal activity. It's not the first instance of that, but it wasn't a common thing in narrative horror films at the time that this right. movie was made. I mean, it would come up later in a lot of Mike Flanagan's work. Yeah, and in I guess Insidious two and other films, but at the time this movie was made, that was kind of you know a novel idea for the for the subject and the and the format.
0: Yeah, and it's it's I don't know, it's the most startling scene. I
1: think it, it is. It's it's yeah, I I agree with you that it's like the most like oh this is a horror movie moment, and of course that's like what they show in the trailer. Of course, when After yeah. Dark picked it up because they didn't know how to sell it otherwise. But right. the movie is not that. The movie is no. It very much is a slow, deliberate meditation on grief and how we record ourselves in our lives yeah there's a lot of you know the surveillance technology or the the idea of media being a consumer thing that everyone has access to the pacing of it reminds me of a lot of the horror movies
0: that have come out recently that people really loved like it follows Mm -hmm. and the witch where it's just kind of slow and you have to really focus and sometimes that focus doesn't pay off
1: i think i agree with you the two examples You used it Follows in the Witch. I love, I adore both of those movies. But the film that I think this movie has a lot in common with from very recently is Hereditary. Yeah. I think it has a lot of the same themes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hereditary is definitely more focused on the mental health angle and the, you know, dysfunctional family stuff. But I think this movie is better at integrating the themes of grief and loss. And what that can do to a family and to a community—it it does a better job of integrating that with the supernatural component than I think *Hereditary* did. I think it's a better Her- movie. It is a better movie. I th- there's a lot that I, there's a lot to love about *Hereditary*, and I think that I have this whole read on it where I—I I very douchely, very pitchfork. i consider it to be our country's first post creepypasta horror narrative movie yeah it's very much informed by i think the the conventions of creepypasta but that's a whole other conversation for a lot for all there is to love about hereditary i think that it lets its themes and its plotting get in the way of its story and of its characters and it, it kind of fumbles the ending yeah i agree And there's a literal box of exposition, which is (laughs) whatever. But I think that I do think that there are a lot of parallels between Hereditary and Lake Mungo. And I think maybe Lake Mungo informed Hereditary to some degree. I don't you know, if we ever get Ari Aster on the show, I can ask him that. Is he Australian? No, he's actually he's he went to the same college I went to. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, when I went to it, it was called the College of Santa Fe. When he went to it, it was Santa Fe University of Art and Design. But of course- And he, you and
0: Annie Letterman went to the same college, yes, right? Yes, Annie Letterman went to and school. And then your college
1: burned down? No, it just- <laughs> <laughs> it, Economically, it burned Actually, the barracks part of it did oh, catch okay. fire. Part yeah, we it, just had her on and Part, and on part of it Pop's did burn episode. down not long ago. Yeah, I forgot about that. But also- Oh, embellish an Annie. Economically, it burned down. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But Ari Aster went to AFI and I did not. And that's- Right. Yeah, he gets to make Hereditary, and I'm doing this. Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't let him have a
0: podcast on this network. I bet he's not that funny.
1: <laughs> so yeah, this movie, I, I do think it has a lot of a lot in uh, common with Hereditary, and maybe right. possibly informed it to some degree i can't say for certain of course because this movie did get some attention it's pretty obscure but it's also you know people in the know do celebrate this film and do talk about it so yeah i know a lot of people who like this Mm -hmm. movie and uh so let's talk about the movie you've seen it more recently than i have i watched it again today
0: i've seen it probably four times now
1: oh wow and at least three
0: of those times were for
1: this (laughs) podcast i think i've only seen it three (laughs) (laughs) but i and and only two of them were for this podcast. <laughs> What's your take on it? It's, I mean, it's a
0: really good movie. It's, I don't think there's any, like, that's not a controversial take. Like, if you look at any audience reviews for this, critics reviews, it's a pretty much universally respected film. Yes. And I think it is a, like, I didn't like a lot of, like, I didn't like, I liked It Follows. I didn't like The Witch that much. I didn't like Hereditary. And I feel like this movie does what those movies were shooting for a little better.
1: I think that a film like this, especially if it's done as well as this film, I think it already has kind of an upper hand on films like that when it comes to telling this kind of story, using these kinds of themes, and really resonating. Because something like The Witch, uh, which I love, and I know a lot of people who don't. Right. And I think it's because it has that, you know, that very affected dialogue from its time it's a narrative film it's you know it's already got a higher bar for things like suspension of disbelief and for satisfying expectations yeah you know people see something that some critics call post-horror quote-unquote which i fucking hate yeah, that's
0: an I, I, insane phrase. I
1: despise that shit. And I feel like with Joel Anderson's comments about this film, I'm kind of you know on the fence about it. Because I don't like saying, well, this isn't a horror movie. It's not a ghost story. It's an exploration of grief. And it's like, well, it can it's, be it's both. It's absolutely a ghost story. Yeah, it can be both. I mean, Sucker
0: Punch is an exploration <laughs> of grief. Yikes. It is. Yeah, but it's not good. Here's the thing. It's good if you watch it the right way. We're not
1: you're not going to convince me on this.
0: Because Baby Doll is not the lead character. It's Sweet Pea is the main character and she's going through the stages of grief. It's basically dealing with grief and the setting is a mental hospital as battlefield to fight through grief. Watch it that way, makes a whole lot more sense and it's a way better movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm it's angry a, now. It's a I'm good angry movie
1: that you have convinced me to watch. Sucker Punch. You
0: have to. You have to.
1: Look, my point is, <laughs> <laughs> is that something like this that is working in the field of pseudo-documentary with the techniques of documentary, with the ethical concerns of documentary, and if it nails those, we're already more open to right. this kind of a story than we would be watching something like It Follows or The Witch. Sure. I think it already has that hand, but I don't. I don't want to underestimate the film's ability to deliver that because it does so in such a great job
0: oh absolutely yeah that's the thing i I think it it's a more effective example of Mm -hmm. all of those yeah i feel like there are a lot of people who would come away from this movie and call it boring because it's it's not a fast-paced movie and i think it's it's that group of people who can't watch a movie without being on their phone
1: Mm -hmm. its horror beats are much less concerned with scaring you right in the traditional sense of scaring an audience and much more interested with bothering you on an existential level and upsetting you and that's also a form of horror i mean i I don't want to get into the whole subcategories of the threat response survival circuit (laughs) (laughs) right and what we mean when we're talking about fear but that's there Sure, It's there in the ideas of frustrative non-reward and in sustained threat and in loss, which is a subcategory of the threat response survival circuit that we call fear. It's part of the flight or fight instinct in us. Yeah. So even when we're talking about loss, we're still talking about horror. So I don't think the concepts are not mutually exclusive and it always bothers me when people do that post-horror dweeb talk bullshit because it's like, no, fuck you. Like, right. horror movies have been doing this forever, you just don't know anything about horror movies, so you don't get to talk about it. Yeah, it feels like we're
0: very, very much in that age right now.
1: Absolutely! <laughs> we're, very much, <laughs> we're very much in the age of people who don't recognize, who didn't, you know, take the history class talking about stuff as if they know what they're talking about. And it bums me out. And yeah. And that's why we do this podcast. So the movie is... A pseudodoc, it's a documentary ostensibly about the Palmer family in suburban New South Wales, Australia, who have lost their daughter, Alice Palmer, who has drowned to death, and then stuff starts happening. Boy, does it. And there are a number of reveals, and it delivers these reveals in a really stunning fashion through the use of multiple found footage formats and components and ideas.
0: Yeah, I like that none of the situations and the things they find out about alice they're all crazy but it's all stuff like this you could see this being just a documentary about a girl who died mm-hmm. and her family finds out a lot of crazy shit about yeah what was going on with her well, life Well,
1: and retooled i mean it could read like a reboot of my so-called life yeah in that like these things that happen that are crazy are not things that are outside the realm of possibility or even outside you know a lot of people's experience right spoilers obviously but the reveals that she was in a sexual Incident if not relationship, relationship with this married couple. The couple. The, not, not just the not dude. Not just the dude. The couple. Yeah. Who are her neighbors who knew her it's it's bothersome and it's it's a revelation, but it's not supernatural. <laughs> it's not No, it's not supernatural and mm-hmm. it's a story
0: that like I'm positive has happened. I, I'm sure it's rare. Of course. But it's definitely happened yes and i like that i like that everything
1: about it feels real like it it feels real and it also doesn't do anything to undermine the agency of alice palmer which is another thing that i think this film does really well in giving us alice palmer's character after she's died we learn more and more about her and it develops her as a character yeah. Posthumously in her absence. And it doesn't take anything away from like, yet was she being exploited by this neighbor, by these neighbors? Right. Arguably. Yes. But that exploitation doesn't make her any less significant in, you know what I mean? Like, I right. don't think it's judgy about her position in this. No, it doesn't shame her. No. Even, even when the boyfriend character who's kind of like, well, she didn't tell me cause I would have dumped her, you know, like, yeah, you're seeing him, not the film indicting her actions. Like,
0: right. And that's, that's a really like if i heard that answer from someone like if they were on the news and gave that answer i'd be pretty satisfied with that answer yeah <laughs> like that's that's a pretty solid answer yeah. like they never this movie never gets goofy or like it's it really sticks mm-hmm. to this is a documentary about a family grieving mm-hmm the death of a child and it and
1: it just grounds that reality so well with the documentary aesthetic with the inserts of characters that sort of act as prelude to their interviews of you know the way that it's shot the way that it's cut just the assembly in general yeah it never gets goofy even in what could be considered a goofy reveal with the brother yeah i matthew
0: i really like that reveal because when they like when you take the relationship with the married couple aspect into account then when you when you get to that reveal it's like well is this just gonna be like a murder mystery like Mm -hmm. did the yeah did the family just murder her and dump her in that lake it the narrative shifts so
1: well so seamlessly so fluidly in so many points like you get this idea and it's like okay it's this portrait of this family that's grieving okay and then there's all right and that's there's like a dark aspect of it because it's sort of like why did she drown we don't know what happened to her with the 911 call at the opening right and all this it's like are we trying to figure out how she drowned. And then it's, oh no, it's a portrait of a family grieving after their, and like what this does to people. And then it's, oh no, it's this paranormal sort of like unsolved mysteries, tabloid TV kind of thing about this family that's experiencing this paranormal activity with these kind of haunting emanations and and phenomenon going on inside their house. And then it's, oh no, it's a story about this brother who faked, all of this paranormal activity stuff and then wait, oh no, is it a murder mystery about this married couple that maybe murdered her and then oh no, there's this whole other thing. Right, because
0: that all happens before the cell phone scene I believe, right? Yes,
1: yes all of that, the the cell phone scene is very close to the end. Right,
0: and Um, then that's kind of when you realize it's switching
1: back to mm -hmm. this is going to be a ghost story There's a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. It just does such a great job with all of that and with opening up the themes and opening up the narrative so many times with these reveals, and it never feels that is a tough trick to maintain, yeah, without feeling goofy or without ever making your audience feel cheated or without ever, you know, feeling because everything broke. again,
0: all of those. All of those situations are things you could see happening in real life. That's mm-hmm. the, if people were on the news talking about pictures their kid took that have the shadow of his dead sister in the pictures, yeah. the first thing you would say is, well, he faked him, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then no. we find out he faked him. And and we find out why.
1: Yeah. And why he did it is not, I mean, it's perfectly like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I get yeah, it. Yeah, he
0: wasn't like trying to win a contest yeah. like some movies would probably make it like oh well there was this horror contest mm-hmm. I wanted to enter to take the creepiest picture
1: and yeah Slenderman <laughs> yeah well and as a you know on the pragmatic level of the filmmaking and trying to keep the filmmaking trying to utilize their limited resources for maximum effect you know that aids the, like okay we, we need to do something that we can shoot sort of around these little bits we've constructed uh, whenever we want and then we find the story in the editing or whatever you know like right. we, we kind of piece it together it aids that that idea of keeping it that grounded. I think I lost my point. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so it does all of these things and it in doing that, it kind of covers a lot of the subjects we talk about in today's episode regarding media portrayals of quote unquote suburban families. I think we we talk a lot about American families in the episode, but I mean this is an Australian family, but they're an analogue for yeah. your middle class suburban family. Australia's
0: is just America without a bill of rights. <laughs> That's all Australia yeah. is. And now without guns. So Because they don't have a bill of rights, Andy.
1: <laughs> oh, fuck.
0: This is going to take a turn. <laughs> uh, shoot They the really ghost. don't have a bill of rights. That's why we test all of our really crazy Patriot Act stuff there first. What? We'll get into it later. Do I need
1: to listen to the Connor McSpadden podcast? Yeah, yeah. Probably.
0: <laughs> yeah. We share it, our intelligence with all the white nations. That's all I'm saying.
1: Oh, okay. That's all. So it's media representations of families, media representations of paranormal experiences, the, the nature of manipulating media, the nature of... That's it. That's all I... <laughs> oh my God. Those are the whole things But like you know The ideas of the dead Communicating with us And what that means and Right And here You know you can say It's a metaphor Despite the fact that There definitely is a fucking ghost Although the film does Such a good job At selling these Payoff reveals Right That it could be seen As maybe Even that last cell phone Maybe there was something Else there that we didn't You know what I mean Like Right Like it's sort of like The West Memphis 3 documentaries Maybe there's gonna be Another Lake Mungo 2 <laughs> Lake Mungo Revisited Or whatever Ever, and right. it's like, actually, that cell phone footage was this thing. Yeah. It constantly is saying, oh, this isn't what it seems. Right. This isn't what we thought it was.
0: Yeah. And- but then there's that reveal at the end that makes it pretty clear. Well, yeah. yeah, what, the
1: psychic uh, time travel uh, dreams. No. The pictures. Yeah, but what if those are, you know, part of whatever did the cell phone thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I agree with what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 because obviously to me, I'm like, no, when you zoom out of those pictures, that's a fucking ghost. Oh, when, yeah. When right. we see that cell phone, that's a fucking ghost. When the mother is describing her vision of walking through this house, and it's mirrored with Alice doing her little dream walk through the house. Right. And then missing each other. Not only is that, yeah, okay, that's a great metaphor metaphor for what, for parasocial relationships and grief and loss yeah. and, you know, how we can never really know someone, whatever. It's it's all of those things. But to me, it's also like, okay, that's there's ghosts. It's ghosts. Yeah, it's ghosts. <laughs> yeah. It's ghosts. Yeah. And, you know, even then it could be argued like, well, what if that's a psychic projection? Like, what if the ghosts in those pictures are a psychic projection from back when Alice was alive and was being guided by this psychic into these things who by the way I love I love Ray Kamini the, the psychic Oh yeah, the character is so great the yeah. story about him changing his name to Ray because it's more trustworthy <laughs> yeah. is fantastic yeah that was great but the, the film is working with a lot of stuff here It plays. it's juggling a lot of themes and a lot of narrative threads and it never feels like it drops any of them or loses any of them no and it does it to tell us supernatural story which is i love i think that's why i think this is if not the best it's my definite favorite of the films that we've discussed thus far yeah as part of our focal discussions yeah it's one show. of the best
0: found footage movies just in mm-hmm. general
1: and it's a shame it doesn't get more yeah i mean it gets credit again from certain circles but it's not there's no blu-ray of it we should do a bonus episode about really underrated found oh, footage movies i would love to do i would love to do that. I would love to do a list cast as well of just like the best underrated, <laughs> yeah, or the most underrated. Although that's hard to gauge. So yeah, yeah. So a bonus episode of Cool School, yeah, we could do like bonus episode of Ghoul School, especially this season where we talk about found the found underrated footage found footage gems because I want to talk about Taking of Deborah Logan and I want to talk about Incident at Loch Ness. Incident at Loch Ness for sure. And Troll that's Hunter. Troll Hunter definitely. And it's difficult to talk about those in the context of this season. At any length, right? Like I, I will be. Re- I do reference taking a Daryl Logan in this episode or the next. If if not in this episode, it will be in the next one, right? But you know, I want to get into it. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, I like, mean, there's some found footage movies that are just good movies, and there's not a lot. Yeah, like Troll Hunter. I don't think it it broke any. Ground well, it was pretty funny. It had that going. For
1: I it. think it. I think it broke ground in that it kind of took some stuff some people were already doing, but used it for something else. In that way, like it, it's. In the, I think it broke ground in kind of the same way that something like End of Watch broke ground or Chronicle. What I liked about Troll
0: Hunter, it was a. It was funny, but it also wasn't corny like that. Yeah. When I saw Troll Hunter and saw the cover and just saw that monster on the front, <laughs> I was like, this is going to be the cheesiest thing I've ever yeah. seen. And then it all looks so
1: great. Yeah. I saw it in the theater. The monsters look so great yeah. in yeah, that. Yeah, they do. Well, and they look great. They look great. They look like they're really there. But they also look like, you know, Norse right. drawings of trolls. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Like Scandinavian. Like they look, they, they're, not, they're not gritty reboots. Right. Trolls. They look like fucking trolls. Yeah. Like they've got big, weird noses. And crazy eyes, and they, they look kind of cartoonish in that way, but they also look like they're really there. So, right, and it, it, that in itself, I think, is a perfect illustration of how that movie manages to balance horror and comedy. Like it's paying respect to this mythological folklore regarding the you know what trolls are by having them look the way that they would look right. in actual troll stories. That they're not made to look more realistic in that way, but it's also it's very taken very seriously. It's it's and that's a hard thing to do. It's hard to balance comedy and horror in that way that Troll Hunter does and that very few other films do that well yeah. Shaun of the Dead Severance The Host right. those are all examples of films that I think manage to like and Lake Mungo Lake Mungo I think <laughs> does something else <laughs> I think it. I think what Lake Mungo does that's really admirable is that it throws all of its chips onto one side of that onto the right. uh, the sad depressing side without tipping it you know what I mean which is very difficult to yeah. do like again it never feels silly but it also never feels too morose or too somber despite the fact that it's very morose and somber
0: yeah and i think it's it's all of those tone shifts that that make it that way because once like every time the story changes it's like there's a little more hope that this is going to have some sort of because everything else is so real that's happening
1: like there's some sort of hope that well this is going to have a really satisfying yeah. it's kind of so fascinating ending. how it, it uses narrative tweaks to affect a emotional, you know what I mean, or yeah. or, or tonal shift like it, it, without it actually changing what its atmosphere is really. Like right. That's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, because
0: so much of it is why like we know she died in a lake, but why? How? Like why what was she doing in the water? And, and that's really never paid off. It's a, it's never explained but they they keep it keeps feeling like, well, the ghost thing was explained, so now maybe this will be explained yeah, too.
1: And it's not. And, and it's I, not. I think that's... And I think it's for the best. It's one of its strengths, for sure. It's kind of like that, you know, that thing where it's we don't get satisfied. We don't get narrative satisfaction, really, to the degree that we're used to. We instead, it's kind of left open for us to, in the same way that there is no such thing as closure when a person dies. Right. You know, we tell ourselves about closure, we tell ourselves about moving on. And there are stages to agree. And there is a thing called acceptance, but it's never really done. Yeah. You know, like you can go 20 years after someone died and still just one day wake up and realize, oh, they're not in the world anymore and it shatters you. Right. That's what this film
0: does
1: because it leaves that sort of hollow feeling as you're leaving of like, well, fuck. Yeah. This is sad. Yeah. But even then, like, that's as real as it gets. Yeah. And that feels so there's kind of an exhilarating feeling to that where it's like, that's what acceptance is, is being like, oh, shit. Well, this is just the way it is.
0: Yeah. We're just not going
1: to know how she died, and there's something she's a ghost now a, yeah. who and lives there's, in that house. There's something really exciting about not being lied to in that regard, you know, right. by a film like this. It's it's like oh, it's, you're being honest with me. It's kind of like the first time you're when you're a kid, the first time a grown-up talks to you like you're a grown-up, right? And you're like, "Oh, are shit, you going to molest me? This feels oh okay. Well, not like that." <laughs> This feels kind of sad because I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But it's, it's it also feels great. I right. I don't
0: know. Yeah. I don't know. I get you. Do you? I get it. Do you? I get it. Okay.
1: It's harder to be funny about this movie.
0: Because there aren't really any moments that you can call out and be like, well, there was this one thing that I wish they had not done. Like, there's always, in horror movies, that's going to happen. There's going to be, that's what I'm, when I say it, it never gets corny. It's like, there's no, yeah, there's nothing to cringe at mm-hmm. in this. It's just a really well done movie. Yeah. And that makes it hard to, like I used to do, I did a couple episodes of this show called Burn Booth where it was me and Connor McSpadden and Keith Carey and we would just go sit somewhere. I,
1: I saw some of those.
0: And people would walk up and allow us to roast them. We'd go to like the Santa Monica Pier and there would be like, this beautiful couple in front of us. And I'm like, what do I say about these motherfuckers? Like, <laughs> they're so lovely and they're going to have beautiful kids and they probably have a ton of money. Like, it's hard to be funny when something yeah. is just good. Yeah.
1: And it's not I like mean, I... I
0: still pulled it off because I'm pretty
1: fucking funny.
0: <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, like, there's nothing to make fun of about this movie. There's nothing- mm-hmm really,
1: that I would fix. Even headcanon-wise, I can't be like, well, what if Alice Palmer did 9-11? You know, like, I can't... (laughs) Yeah, that would be cool. (laughs) She actually is the Poughkeepsie killer. (laughs) Alice Palmer's ghost (laughs) is killing people in the Poughkeepsie tapes. After the tower collapses, the pluma smoke looks like her face. (laughs)
0: Her brother brother (laughs) edited the smoke (laughs) to look like her. It's on the cover of Weekly World News. She didn't
1: actually drown in the... Oh, my God. Well, okay, we did it. She just buried her passport in the forest. Oh, that's creepy. That's a creepy detail. It was. And it's a thing that like owes to shit like Blair Witch Project to some degree, but in that way that it's like, oh, this is a weird little gesture that means something much larger, but we don't know what it means. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. This film is just, it's fucking perfect. It is. The it's per- really fucking good. The performances are great all around. Yeah, they get... June is... They get really great performances. The mother, June, is is incredible. Yeah, they're all... Like, all of the actors... Yeah. All, the acting is great. The mm-hmm. kid is great. Yeah, Matthew is fantastic. Yeah. The friends are great. There's no moment, like, in Poughkeepsie Tapes where that one woman is talking about uh, Cheryl Dempsey and is, like, kind of, like, being really dismissive about... Yeah. ...her trauma. You know, there's nothing like that. Like, her friends... Yes, some of them kind of seem a little shitty but like you know i don't there's no i don't disbelieve any of it right i
0: don't disbelieve it and i don't dislike any of the character well the the married couple yeah
1: that was
0: (laughs) that was sketchy yeah obviously maybe you
1: should not be having sex with a high school
0: but like the when they were interviewing the boyfriend about her relationship with that married couple i can see so many horror movies where the boyfriend would have been like oh fuck that bitch and like but even he was just like no man if i Wouldn't have been going out with her if I knew she was fucking a married couple. What do you want me to say? (laughs) Yeah, like it was all which isn't an an unreasonable thing to say. Perfect. (laughs) Fuck, that is the ideal answer. And because of that, it just, like, there's nothing... There's no characters to call out. There's nothing... Mm-mm. People should just watch, like, Mungo. Yeah, just watch it. Why wouldn't, don't, you, don't, why wouldn't you watch it?
1: Like, I feel bad because I... We we definitely spoiled some stuff. I feel like we're, we're, we're holding back on a lot of stuff, too. Like, I'm being very general when I talk about the documentary technique of it and how skillful it is. Yeah. I could go into details on why I say all these things. Right. I don't want to. Because I want you to kind of just see it, you know, and feel it. But it's just, uh... Yeah, I mean... It, any you t- anytime the film does something where I'm like okay that's a deflation I'm not a fan of like immediately I get like immediately something happens or the film does something where I'm like oh I get why they did that thing before now like yeah, yeah there's no loose ends I mean there are some narrative loose ends but they're in service of the horror element of it right just like it's just very much like this is a real fucking edgar Allan poe kind of scenario like edgar Allan poe had this whole thing about the totality of effect where like every component of a story every part of the technique of writing something had to be in service of one emotion or to get one response from the reader and it was all just a pile on that it was all focused on that and this film is that it's just all of it is directed toward this one goal and it does it's it's so successful in that yeah
0: it this is going to be a weird comparison but what it reminds me of is how omar died on the wire yes Where he was this beloved character and like everyone knows he's going to die at some point. But when it happens, it's so quick and so unceremonious and people were mad. But it's like that's how people die when you sell drugs in Baltimore. And with this movie, the ending, they don't like there's loose ends and you don't find anything out. But sometimes that's how it works when people die.
1: I have also compared it to the ending of No Country for Old Men. Yeah. In that same way where it's like, yeah, it feels unfair. Yeah. But that's fine. That's how. That's what makes it, it works great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So good. That wasn't a weird comparison.
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. It's a completely valid comparison. I think it's great. Yeah, it's just a good movie. It's just good for I, comparing it
0: to The Wire and No Country for Old Men. Yeah, come
1: yeah, on. We're, come and, on. And, and and Poe and actually losing a loved one. If you've never lost a loved one, it it's feels great. great. It it's is fantastic. So awesome. It, <laughs> It definitely, it definitely doesn't hurt for the rest of your life. No, no. But it's a good hurt. You love that hurt. It's the hurt that makes you do comedy. Yeah. Well, It's the hurt that makes you do drugs, too. So, well, yeah. Either or.
0: But, you know... I only do comedy so I can do drugs. See, I only do drugs because
1: I'm only funny when I'm fucked up. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's not true at all. No. <laughs> that's Neither, that's none of this, none of what we're saying total is true. We're lying to you right now. Yeah. Unlike the movie we Lake We do Mundo. comedy
0: because we're good at it.
1: The movie Lake Mungo will never lie to you the way that we just lied to you. It will not. It will tell you everything that's <laughs> happening. You just have to watch. Yeah. Lake Mungo's like, uh, guys, yes, okay, I quit smoking four years ago, but I have cheated a couple times. Like, it's going to be honest with you. Yeah. Me. It's not
0: And I still got cancer.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) The Tui's—that's the neighbor's name.
0: Oh yeah, what a weird name! There's there's all these Australian names in it: Smeat, Tui, Alice, Alice. What kind of name is that? Reminds me of Alice Springs Chicken at Outback, the only Australian restaurant I've ever been to. I don't Outback Steakhouse. It's well, Alice Springs, is where, there's a big U.S. intelligence base there. Oh, and that's how... And there's also Alice Springs chicken on the Outback
1: Steakhouse menu. And that's why we were able to... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't um, know. When you request a prisoner... Extradite? Extradite. That's how we were able to get Australian intelligence to extradite the ghost of Alice Palmer... Right. ...to Northern California... To Twin Peaks. ...for that UFO abduction. Right, right. <laughs> Australia has a really rich history of genre filmmaking. You could have stopped it of, just of fill in the blank. Every, they have a rich yeah. history <laughs> yeah. of... Racism, oh, they got tons yep. of it. they got lots of that. That's Violence. the only
0: country where I won't let people on Thanksgiving. You can't tweet at your American friends from Australia and be like, "Mm, celebrating murdering the native people. It's like, are you celebrating murdering native people?
1: I think think that's what their flag is. Yeah. Is it it not not even a depiction? It It just folds out into a knife (laughs) with which
0: you can murder native people.
1: Oh my God. That's a that's a whole thing. It's a place. And on the site Lake Mungo, where they found, I mean, that's, it like, they had estimated aboriginal life in Australia had only existed for this like one window of time. And then in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, when they found those burial sites, it was like, oh, we were way off. Yeah. Yeah. These folks were here for a lot longer <laughs> than we thought they were. <laughs> and it's it's just like, yeah, now you probably feel bad about some of the stuff you did to them, don't you? No. I wish they did. What are you, in Midnight Oil? Oh, God. I love Midnight Oil. It's good band. I just love Australia stuff midnight yeah. oil is a great band the Bloomin onion is a wonderful appetizer it sure is i love a good steak yeah those also are... available out at outback yeah those uh, are only in australia yeah crocodile dundee fucking rules
0: silver chair was a pretty good band
1: yeah uh i believe courtney Frenzel. barnett is what? australian oh is she yeah. Wasn't Friend... The, did you ever listen to the band Rom? No. They were a punk band on Fat Records. I think they were Australian. Tame Impala is
0: Australian.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's a lot of good Australian genre films. If you watch it, you should watch the documentary Not Quite Hollywood. And it's all about this, like, all of the crazy exploitation and genre movies, horror and sci-fi made in Australia. There's Dead End Drive-In is great. They've had Hatrick Patrick is great.
0: Decent horror movies. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Wolf Creek. Well, Wolf I remember Creek... liking Wolf Creek, and they made that into a series that yeah. I have not
1: watched. It's been theorized that the success of Wolf Creek was partly responsible for the Australian Film Commission giving money to Lake Mungo, even though Lake oh, Mungo really? was a much different, a very different, very movie. different movie. Uh, it's not the same kind of genre treatment at all. Did
0: you like the Snowtown Murders?
1: I love the Snowtown Murders. I need to. Well, love is. Watch a, it I shouldn't again. say love. That's a strong word. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Uh, the loved ones.
0: I don't know if I saw the loved ones. Oh,
1: you should see it. It's like a a kind of reversal of the torture porn stuff from the uh, you know early to mid two thousands, and it's it's great. It's one. It's fantastic. Is it a recent movie? Not super recent. It's two thousand nine. Oh, so around the same time as these other movies we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's really good. You should see it. It's going to be on Shutter. Oh, is it? Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's good. It's great. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, Wolf Creek too is kind of it bridges. The, it's got John Jarrett in it, and John Jarrett was in Next of Kin, which has been called the Australian Suspiria. It's super awesome. Yeah. It's a Australian horror movie from the early '80s, and you know it's sort of like you know the, if you put like t- Tony Todd or Robert England in a horror movie now, yeah, it's the same effect as when they put John Jarrett in Wolf Creek right. to be like, hey, remember yeah. we used to make great horror movies in this country? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it again. And they did. And They did. Good for you, Australia. Way to go, Australia. You did it. Good job. And hey, you you, you stopped active shooters and you made some of the best horror movies we've seen in a while. Treat your immigrants better. Yeah, definitely. God, that's the one thing about Australians. I've met a lot
0: of racist ones. They do not like, they have an, a separate island for immigrants oh, man. in Australia. Nothing, it's fine. It's not. It's, it's really just not a separate fine. island, Andy. It's just an island where they send people they don't people they don't like. That always works out real well. I forgot. There's somewhere. Well, eh, doesn't matter. There's a movie about that. It's called The Fog. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know what we're doing now. I don't either. We could. We're probably good. Yeah, I think yeah. we're
1: good. There. There are no real stingers in this movie. There's no big like horror jump stinger moments. But there's one towards the end, and then it happens. Right before this really challenging resolution that's not satisfying at all, but in that way is satisfying. I don't know. Yeah.
0: It's still satisfying. It's great. All right. Are we going to count? Should we count? Let's count. No, let's just do it. Let's just feel
1: it. Let's get in the moment. No. You know what we should do? What should we do? We should set an alarm that sounds like a school bell, that gives us a certain amount I mean not for this one obviously cuz we're already here. But like we set it to go off at a certain time so that we have our time limit and then when it goes off it's like, oh, well that's that's the end of the end of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then when it goes off, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a school bell at all. Yes it does. Class <laughs> deceased. <laughs>
0: I don't know if that even picked that up. Maybe it did.